From the MIT studios of the Teaching Systems Lab, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. Um, Welcome back, Teach Lab listeners. This is the first episode in a two-part series on our new documentary film, We Have to Do Something Different, Teachers on the Journey to Become More Equitable Educators. In this episode, you'll hear some of my reflections on the making of the film, some highlights from the documentary, and an interview with one of the stars of the film, the extraordinary Boston Public School educator, Nima Avashia. Let's dive in and cue up the trailer from the film. What exactly are teachers doing in the classrooms where all students thrive, but especially our most marginalized, our most vulnerable students are thriving? If I sat in the classroom of an educator who was really doing that work well, what exactly would it look like? And a big part of that for me is really listening to and learning from some of our most experienced educators about how they address the inequities that they see in their schools. If you are an educator, like you have to have a passion to create change at a bigger lens. We have young people in front of us every day for 180 days a year. Like we are the space where change can really happen. We're in the human business. I mean, we, we, are, we are teaching human beings, right? The most marginalized students that we have need the, the, the most relationships. Instead of asking, you know, what's wrong with this kid? It's like, what happened to this kid? Everybody needs something different. Despite all of the interventions of the last 20 years, we still have a significant and disturbing academic and achievement gap, a testing gap. We have all of these data points that are still not getting much better and that in some cases are increasing in in bad ways. And so we have to do something different. So the film, We Have to Do Something Different, comes from a a bunch of work that we've done in our lab to understand what we call equity teaching practices. And I'll tell you a little bit about the deep background of this, which is a number of years ago, we got really interested in creating simulations for teachers, creating these sort of little role play moments where you're immersed in some kind of difficult moment in classroom teaching through technology, and you have to improvisationally respond. And we were trying to figure out how we might use these kinds of role plays to advance computer science education. And when we go into a new field, we try to be really respectful of the work that prior folks have done in that field. So we did as much reading as we could, and we found there are lots of amazing people who are working on equity in computer science education. But they tend to be really focused on policy, you know, who gets into what classes and how they get tend to be really focused on curriculum, what kind of classes should we offer, how will these classes um, invite new people in, in lesson planning, how do we structure lessons in a way that broaden participation, make it more equitable. We found there was much less work around the improvisational decisions that teachers make class to class, minute to minute, moment to moment, which are so enormously consequential for young kids' lives. I mean, I think almost any of us can think of a moment where a teacher said something to us that that lifted us up, that, that carried our lives forward in really powerful ways, and moments where teachers shut us down um, and made us feel terrible and foreclosed opportunities uh, in our lives. So helping teachers navigate those moments is one of the most important things we can do to help improve the profession. So. 
I got really interested in this idea of equity teaching practices. What happens in these improvisational moments? We partnered with Rich Milner to create an online course. Rich Milner is a terrific uh, researcher at Vanderbilt, uh, has a book called Start Where You Are But Don't Stay There, which thinks about opportunity-centered teaching. Um, we created this online course, and in part of creating this online course, we went to a whole bunch of different schools and classrooms with the goal of trying to capture documentary footage of what it looks like when you're in the classroom of teachers who are employing these equity teaching practices. You know, if you were in a classroom with a teacher who was really gifted at helping all students, especially, you know, the most marginalized, the most peripheral students really be included and be successful in learning, what would you see? And we created a number of short documentaries uh, in the film, these little voices in practice case studies, and they, and they came out brilliantly. Um, so in talking with the producer and the filmmaker, Amy Corrigan, we said, let's try to build something where we can stitch all of these things together. There's a kind of audience that we can grab with an online course that might take six or eight weeks for people to work their way through. What would it look like to create something that we could share with people in 35, 45 minutes um, and, and spark some really deep conversations? But again, staying with this theme of what are the improvisational moment to moment practices look like? Can you see what this work looks like in a classroom? So we created the film in a moment that's really different from when we're releasing the film. We started the process of taking this online course and turning it into a documentary in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests around the country, where we saw really growing interest by educators to ask themselves uh, hard questions about what they could be doing in their schools to create more equitable schools. What would their classes look like if they were doing a better job making them inclusive, welcoming, supportive places for all students to learn and thrive? And many, many educators are still asking themselves those questions. And we wanted to be able to answer those questions in really concrete ways by saying, this is what this kind of work looks like in different kinds of classrooms. We actually filmed it in the parts of it, especially in the very waning days before we were struck by a pandemic. Um, so we have inadvertently created kind of a time capsule of what a handful of American schools look like uh, right before they shut down. Um, and I think part of what schools are trying to do right now is to figure out what is it that we want to recover that we've lost during the last two years? And maybe looking at some of this footage and seeing what our classrooms looked like in January and February of March of, of 2020 could help educators recover some of that vision. There are two things that are really different about the moment that we're releasing the film in. Um, the first is that there is widespread efforts by state legislators around the country to constrain what teachers can teach. Um, and as communities are having conversations about how we want to tackle issues of race and racism and difference in our country, it's very easy for those conversations to become totally adrift from the reality of what happens in schools. And so this is a way to have those conversations be anchored 
in these are specific examples of classroom practice. Um, what about these examples do you find laudatory and what kinds of concerns might you have? Um, but you know, let's not talk sort of abstractly about how systemic racism gets talked in the United States. Let, let's look really concretely at a teacher, you know, an English teacher trying to teach her class about the Equal Rights Amendment using a speech on the House floor from Shirley Chisholm. Um, that concreteness, I think, grounds those conversations in important ways. Let's play the clip. What's the subject of her speech? Like the thing I, the she's talking about. Amendment. One more time. The yeah, the amendment, right? And what's her position on the amendment? Oh, she, she supports the amendment. She supports the amendment. Yes. We were reading a speech by Shirley Chisholm that she gave in 1970 on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives on the Equal Rights Amendment. So they're debating whether or not this is a good amendment, and she's giving this whole speech to talk about why other people should support the amendment. So that information helps us understand why she's giving the speech, maybe, right? Because I try to pick texts that they wouldn't read otherwise. Um, not that I don't think more traditional texts aren't awesome. Like, I think... They are, but they will get them somewhere else. Someone has to give them other voices in order for them to empathize with other types of people. So equal rights. Uh -huh. We typically think of what kinds of people? Black people. Or, Black people. Yeah. or no, minorities. minorities. Okay. Okay. Or Asian people. Minorities. You could just go with right. minorities. But what if when you read something that you see yourself in, um, it's exciting because it means that number one, your instructor thinks that experience is valuable because they decided to include it. But what is she suggesting here? She's saying we have this law that like makes sure women aren't overworked, but it's kind of also unfair to not do it to men. Yeah, she's saying like a, an amendment on equal rights is not going to be good for just women, right? It's going to be. It's going to be beneficial for more, right? Because who is she? Who is she talking to? Um, the House of Representatives and majority. Men. Yeah, so like she knows her audience, right? We had a really good conversation about like the status of women's rights today and what our legislature looks like demographic-wise and why that might be. They came to the consensus that people have biases. We all have them. But what's crucial is that you recognize when you have them. There are a number of historical oppressions that still have an influence on why students perform the way they perform today, and there's nothing innate about those students in particular. That's the consensus we have about those things, and because of that, um, we just operate, we, op we operate with that in mind all the time. One of the themes that cuts across all, all the teachers in the film to different degrees is the degree to which doing this work really well can feel subversive at different levels and at different extremes. But all of the teachers in some way feel like, even if they're not sort of explicitly being subversive, they're, they're catching you unawares, they're flipping the script. Um, you know, you, you go into Sydney's classroom and she's talking about Shirley Chisholm and the Equal Rights Amendment. And like, oh, actually, this isn't a history classroom. It's an English language arts classroom. This is, this is, this is a, a, a unit about rhetoric in some respects. Um, you go into Nima's um, civics classroom and you say, you know, well, this is going to be about Black Wall Street. This is a topic you won't hear very much. 
is. Have you ever heard the phrase Wall Street before? It's okay if you haven't. Wall Street is a place in New York City. It's actually a street called Wall Street, but it's, Wall Street is kind of seen as like the heart of American business. And this is called Black Wall Street. What else do you see? Black Wall Street is actually the idea of black people saying, okay, fine, segregation exists. We're gonna find ways to build our own wealth. And so today we're actually gonna learn about the history of Black Wall Street, which was a real place. It was the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Black Wall Street existed for about 70 years. Um, and it had this kind of tough experience of like, it rose, it then got destroyed, and then they had to rebuild. And so what we're gonna do for the first 20 minutes of class is you're gonna get a chance to become an expert on the history of Black Wall Street. I'm gonna ask you to look at at least one news article and one news video so you can get some good background from them. And then you can choose, do you wanna read the comic book, do you wanna to listen to the song, or do you wanna look at the poetry? Once we're done researching, you're gonna be jumping into partners with a partner of your choice and being able to design a lesson with them. Part of what I'm trying to do in this unit is teach kids stories of black history that they haven't learned before, balance stories that are painful with stories that are also really powerful, and show kids people thriving, people pushing back, people resisting and succeeding, even in difficult contexts. There are pictures and one, yeah, I mean like it shows you like the before and the after, right? Mm -hmm. What did we learn yesterday about healthcare? Was healthcare well, equal for black and white people during segregation? Because uh, white nurses couldn't even treat black patients. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I would say probably that there was a lot of unequal treatment even when they went to the hospital. I think lots of people don't know the history. And then I do think there is a systemic part of it. I think that the narratives that we teach around um, race in America aren't about resistance a lot of the time. Um, I think we often try to gloss over the hard stuff. What I felt like in both classes, um, kids were both able to see like, wow, this is really deep history. Like, wow, this, this existed and it was so powerful and it's so meaningful. And also to think about like, yeah, why haven't we learned it before? I feel like we should like learn. We should have learned this because, like, in third, like, in just elementary school in general, like, third grade, you learn about the Boston Tea Party. You learn about, like, white people fighting for, like, their independence. But, like, what about black people? Like, did they ever fight for their independence or, like, it was given to them? Like, obviously, it wasn't given to them. So we learned about, like, Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. But, like, that was, like, the ending. Like, what about the beginning? That's right. And this is the beginning. So if I'm not talking about race and the way the race that race is affecting them and affecting their families, then I'm just like, I'm being blind to the very real issues that we're all struggling with. And that, that just doesn't feel right as a teacher. Like my job is to help kids make sense of what's happening in the world, not to pretend that what's happening in the world isn't happening. I had a chance to sit down with Nima Vashia, an educator from Boston Public Schools, and talk with her about her experience during the making of the film. Nima, what was it like to have a crew come in and film you teaching this uh, lesson on Black Wall Street? So on one level, I think I was really excited to have the content of the lesson be in the film. I don't think that a lot of people teach the history of Black Wall Street in their classrooms. I think it's content that should be taught Across the board, I think that many times the history that we teach around black history in this country is really focused on 
um, painful moments and traumatic moments, which are real and true, but also there are so many moments of resistance and of communities thriving and doing for themselves, even in the face of the government not doing for them. And so I think I, w I was excited to have people see that lesson and see that content. I was also nervous because if people's expectation of what they were going to see in the classroom is me at the front of the room, like, you know, standing on my head and doing a bunch of tricks to like keep, keep kids engaged, um, it wasn't that kind of lesson. It was very student centered. There was a lot of choice in it. Kids were using headphones and they were using computers. Um, and so it wasn't going to like look like a Hollywood style classroom or lesson where you have the stage on the stage. And since I wasn't sure kind of where the film was going, I didn't know how that was going to come across. Um, but it still felt important to me that um, that I not change kind of the way I was going to do it, but that like people would just see what class looks like in here, which is you have lots of choice. There are many ways in which you can approach content. Um, you get time to think independently, and then you're going to have time to work with people and discuss and be in dialogue with group members in your whole class about the content. Um, but that very little of class is me at the front kind of pouring information into your head in the way that I think we often construe or imagine education to be. And then Nima, what was it like when you actually got to see the film? I mean, it was so lovely to see young people, like in the discussion component, like see young people sharing their thinking about why learning that history is important. And again, for that to be something that everyone gets to hear, which is a young person saying, we learn the same content again and again and again, and this is the content we should be learning. Felt really powerful and important. The first time I watched it, what's interesting is I actually had a conversation with a former student just yesterday. Um, they're a teacher now, and they came to visit me, and they said they had watched it. Um, and I said, you know, it's weird to think about, but having watched it more recently, I don't recognize myself when I watch that. Um, I, I like, I know I used to be that teacher, um, but three years of, of pandemic teaching uh, makes it kind of sad to watch um, because the context has just changed a lot. And so like, it's weird to have like a kind of like a snapshot of like what used to be, but like what we what isn't anymore. And also that we haven't figured out like what comes next. So it's it's a bit strange, I would say to watch it now. Yeah, I have a haunting experience. I don't know how many viewers notice it, but when you um, see the very first whiteboard that passes through the film in Sydney's classroom at the very beginning, it says something like, March 14th, 2020, I mean, it's really days before all of the schools um, shut down. And so we sort of unintentionally captured um, an artifact of uh, what schools look like, you know, in the very, very last days before, uh, before schools change. But I certainly feel like the film, if you, if you had anxieties that the kinds of student-centered teaching that you facilitate in your classroom, you know, wouldn't come across or, you know, in film, I think they do in really nice ways. And maybe they defy expectations for some people. But I also think, you know, why you're doing what you're doing is both clear as people are watching the first parts of the clip. And then obviously, when the students start talking at the end about what their understanding is and what it means to them, um, it's really clear, you know, I hope to many, many viewers, why you're doing what you're doing there. Um, now, you watch the film with your students. Um, what was their reaction to it? Uh, how, how did they view both your classroom and then all these other teachers that we were talking about? Yeah, I did. So actually last year I did a reimagining education unit with my students. 
um, to, to sort of like try to ask them to think about some of the same questions that, this, that the film is asking, which is what would it look like to create learning environments that were more centered around young people and that were more responsive to what young people needed and wanted from their education? And so we watched the film as part of that. Um, and I mean, it was funny, you know, kids were so excited to see me in the film, to see students that they knew in the film. They're like, you're famous. And that was kind of hilarious. Um, but I think that what was so powerful is that when they were seeing their classroom here, but then also these classrooms across the country where this kind of learning was, was the way people were doing things, I think it really resonated for them. And I think it felt to them like, why can't the rest of school be like this? Or why can't more of school be like these classrooms that they're seeing? One thing that they all really gravitated towards was the way that relationships were so central in all of the classrooms in the film. And that that was the driver of learning, right? That idea that it is the relational piece of learning that's the most important piece, I think resonated very strongly for young people and also felt like something that schools are not currently built to do very well. Uh, and they were able to kind of see that. You know, and that relationship piece is sort of in your clip, but it's also wedded with, I think, you know, middle school teachers of history, social studies, English watching your clip too would be like, no, no, that's really rigorous content that's happening at the same time. You know, we're like, like we're talking about Shirley Chisholm's Equal Rights Amendment speech. We're talking about Black Wall Street. Um, we're talking about aperture and photography, you know, and, and distances and things like that. That the that the you know, it's not it's not like these teachers have sort of jettisoned all of what school is um, to to you know just have a be relationship time. It's that relationships are drivers of those really rich you know intellectually deep learning experiences. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. What What do you hope that viewers will take away from the film? Do you think that educators will see something different from your students that would see something different from parents or community members? I, I think, I hope, uh, I think we're in a really weird space in education right now um, because I think we really have lost our footing in a lot of ways. I think that the sort of mission and purpose of public education has become uh called into question and threatened in some pretty intense ways. I think that there's just a pretty intense assault on public educators, on public schools, on the sort of notion of public education as like a cornerstone of democracy that we're kind of like in the middle of right now, right? And when you're having a crisis of conscience at that level, it's really hard to figure out how you move forward. And so I, I guess I hope that people watching this can kind of use this as a guidepost for like what we're trying to work towards. Um, what is the vision for schooling that we think could be the way in which we engage young people, could be the way in which we sort of provide young people with the kind of education that prepares them for the future and the ways that they need to be prepared. Um, I think it kind of, it offers a vision in a moment where I think vision is really lacking. Um, and so I think that would be my hope is that people could see it and they could feel energized by it and feel like there is uh, um, a vision for learning here that like they can get behind and that they see the value in and that they understand and, and can support why doing that work in schools is so important. What strikes me about your observation, um, which, which resonates with me and, and is sad about sort of public education under assault, is that it's also a moment um, we have surveyed parents over the last two years, maybe more frequently than we have ever surveyed Americans about schools. And they are overwhelmingly, shockingly supportive of their local public schools. Um, in every panel you take, in every phase of the pandemic, um, 
broadly speaking, the public is supportive of their local schools. Parents are particularly supportive, like 75, 80%, you know, kind of no matter how we ask the question, are you satisfied with your school? Are you satisfied with the activities that teachers have offered? You know, like all kinds of questions we've asked. Um, and so I, I hope that another thing, you know, now, now, and unfortunately, the fact that an incredibly high percentage of parents are supportive of their local public schools gets drowned out by what must be a much smaller group of parents and maybe a lot of people who aren't parents who are vigorously opposed to certain things that are happening in public schools. So, a, 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 you know, a relatively small portion of, you know, some of the key stakeholders in schools are driving the conversation. I mean, I think for some of the people who get swept up in the attack on public schools, I think what's powerful about the film is to be able to look at it and be like, what are you objecting to here? Like, like this, this is what it actually looks like. I mean, do you really not want them to learn about Black Wall Street at all? Because that looks like a pretty good, you know, lesson where kids are really, really digging into the materials and thinking about a thing that 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 really happened. Um, and then I think, you know, for for the 75, 80% of parents who are supportive of their local public schools, I think many of them will go, yep, this is the great teaching that I see. You know, maybe not as much as I wish I would, maybe not in every single class, but this is what's happening. Um, and I can really get behind it. And that, you know, that's why I'm supportive of it. So those are, those are some of the hopes that I have for the film that I think the more our conversations of public schools are grounded in some of the really great work that's happening there, uh, people will realize, no, no, these are, you know, this is this is why so many people are so supportive of these local public institutions, because they're not perfect. But boy, are people putting incredible effort into doing a good job. Yeah, I actually think that Black Wall Street lesson is a really interesting example of that, right? Because I actually think there are there are people who don't want that lesson taught in school. Um, a number of them who have been really loud and a number of legislatures who are trying to pass legislation at the state level that would actually make it illegal for me to teach that lesson, or I could be punished, I could be fired for teaching that lesson. And yet to hear a young person say so clearly why they need that lesson, um, to me is the, it's the only antidote to that poison, right? It's, it's when young people actually have the opportunity to say why it matters to, to have an education where you see yourself mirrored, where you see both hard moments in history, but also moments of resistance, like, that is, I think, the only way through this is for young people's voices to be amplified and elevated to talk about why that kind of education matters for them. Um, and they're not in the room so often when these conversations are being had. They are not invited to the table. They're not being asked what matters to them. Um, and when we do, and when we do ask them, adults don't trust that what they're saying is the truth. Right, we think um, they're know, crisis actors or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, or you know, they think, oh, you know, that's just because their parents said that, or that's just because they, you know, we sort of selected. You know, I mean, like your your kids are just folks from the Boston public school system who showed up. Uh, right. You know, they're 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 the they're the regular um, young people. They, I mean, they're extraordinary, but they're you know typical young people. Um, and uh, you know, yeah, the the students who are talking. It, not a big performance for the camera. They had probably forgotten we were there by that point. Um, they were really telling you and telling their peers, you know, what they what they thought, what they felt. Anything else that you want to say about the film or your experience of of being part of it, or or anything else? If we're having a conversation with educators about what what you want them to take away. I mean, I think that the other thing that I think is just like an important thing in the film that is harder to find now, and I think is the thing we all have to find our way back to is joy, like. There's a lot of joy in the film. There's a lot of joy in the learning that's happening, in the dialogue that educators and young people are happening, having with each other. Um, 
I think that joy is the thing that keeps young people coming back. And I think it's the thing that educators return for. And it's the thing that has been the hardest to resurrect. Um, and so I think when educators watching, I think the question is like, how do we, how do we get back to that space where joy is what's driving what we're doing? Um, and I don't have an answer, but it's a question I think about when I'm watching. Yeah, that sounds right. Thanks to Nima Vashia for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our film, join our mailing list to be updated about upcoming screenings or host a screening in your school or community. You can visit somethingdifferentfilm.com. That's somethingdifferentfilm, all one word, dot com. I'm Justin Reich, and this is Teach Lab. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to Teach Lab wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review. This episode was produced by Amy Gorgon and Garrett Beasley. Sound mixed by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe. Until next time.